welcome to episode 42 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most chaotic host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. Let's continue our journey into season four, shall we? I'll be talking about episode seven, Air Cargo, Dial for Murder, and episode eight, For a Million, Why Not? If you're looking for a pristinely produced podcast with no background noise, well, baby, this ain't it. Let's go to Hawaii. So you think it was murder? First fatality at this airport in 10 years, and it's my undercover man. Could have been a coincidence. No. Sure, it happened while he was doing a job for the ring, but I say he was fingered. Who in the ring gave Jerry's orders? Voice at the other end of the phone. He got anywhere from two to $500 for every shipment he pulled off the line. Who recruited him? Another voice on another phone. But how do they know Jerry would cooperate? Well, we set Jerry up as a cargo handler with a hidden prison record and a string of gambling debts. And they bought him. Well, why shouldn't they? If he opened his mouth, they had him. Season 4, Episode 7, Air Cargo, Dial for Murder. Air date, October 20th, 1971. Directed by Michael O'Hurley, this is his 14th of 36 episodes. And written by Meyer Delinsky, this is his third of six episodes. The phone rings at AGM Air Cargo, and the man on the line informs the cargo handler about a specific parcel number and a line that needs to be diverted. It turns out that the cargo handler is undercover, and he relays a message to his boss through airport security. The cargo guy then goes to find the parcel in the warehouse. As he searches, someone drops some crates on him. Seems like an OSHA violation. 5 is on the scene because it turns out the cargo guy was investigating a theft ring, which his boss, Cook, says turned out to be bigger than anticipated. Jerry, the undercover guy, was recruited into the ring. He took orders from a voice on the phone, which also gave him a contact number that changed constantly. Steve still wants the last contact number traced and Jerry's last minutes tracked. He talks to the rest of the cargo crew, who was scattered around the site and doesn't know shit. This could have been an accident or murder, but systems engineer Eric Ling insists on it being an accident. In the air cargo office, as Anita Putnam takes a call from the voice on the phone once again changing the contact number, Ling informs his boss, a man named Hal Sullivan, of 5-0's inclusion on the death investigation and how they're pretty perceptive when it comes to murder. Sullivan isn't concerned. They built this business to last, and it will. True CEO shit. Lang doesn't share his optimism. He wants out and he urges Sullivan to do the same. Sullivan declines, but he lets Ling go. A hospital pharmacy calls Anita at Air Cargo looking for a drug shipment. It was due yesterday and they need it fast. Anita sees that it's insured for $130,000 and tells them that she'll look into it. Instead, she calls the contact number and leaves a message, giving them the parcel number. Meanwhile, Mr. Grayson's very sick wife lingers in a hospital bed, waiting for those drugs to arrive and save her life. Danny gets undercover Jerry's notebook while Cook brings in the cargo crew roster and Kono is assigned to run them down. Figuratively, of course. Some Pan Am guys in Tokyo are unloading some frozen cargo and find Ling's frosty body inside. The police there check Interpol to get the return address and they ship it back. Danny signs for the corpse. 
Jin Ho talks to a lady who leads him to the location of the last contact number. It's an empty room with just a phone. The landlady says she only conducted business with the tenant in question by phone, and she still has his check. 5-0 is a bit stumped. They don't have a solid reason why Ling was killed, and they can't connect any of the cargo crew members to the theft ring. Dano has fixed up slides of Jerry's notebook, and as they go through them, they find Anita's name. Danny talks to Sullivan and confronts him about the thefts. Sullivan claims that he was keeping the thefts in-house so the news wouldn't scare off customers. Ling was their troubleshooter, but says he doesn't know any of his friends or why anyone would kill him. Danny leaves frustrated. Steve and Chin search Ling's house, which leads them to three safety deposit boxes full of cash. Danny then ties Ling to the empty apartment Chin found and the theft ring through handwriting samples. Meanwhile, Mr. Grayson, who also does a lot of shipping, goes to the air cargo office to complain about the criminal negligence as the pharmacy is still waiting on the replacement shipment of drugs. Not satisfied with their response, he goes to 5 and Steve promises they'll investigate, going so far as to send Chin with Grayson to pick up the replacement shipment. They race to the hospital, but it's too late. Grayson's wife is dead, and he doesn't take the news well. So this episode opens with the cargo crew unloading some stuff and Jerry, our undercover guy, getting a call. And then we quickly figure out that there is some shenanigans going on and that Jerry is in on the shenanigans, but he's also double spying the shenanigans. He goes into the warehouse to look for this parcel and you see one of the crew guys, I think his name's Malcolm. You see him watch Jerry And so you kind of know that he's probably the guy that pulled the lever that ended up leading to Jerry's demise. But the thing is, is that you have these crates. They're up on like, I don't know, like a forklift or something. He's underneath of them. Malcolm pulls the lever. The crates come tumbling down on him. And yes, I honestly did first think OSHA violation. But my second thought was, this is the Acme Warehouse. It just, it felt like a cartoon accident that, of course, Wile E. Coyote, the crates would come down on your head. And I realize this makes me a bad person. But beyond that, we have a very sophisticated theft ring happening. There is a lot of moving parts, which is a dangerous thing, because if any one of those moving parts decides to talk, you're screwed. We have Sullivan and Ling, who are, like, leading the charge here. Ling came up with the way that the theft ring operates. Sullivan oversees it. And they both admit that they've been skimming off the top of this theft ring in addition to getting whatever money they can out of it, plus their regular salaries just working at the air cargo place. You have Malcolm heading up the crew. We know that he's involved, and there has to be other crew members who are involved aside from Undercover Jerry. We also have the girls in the office who take customer service phone calls asking about shipments and things. They are on the lookout for any sort of parcels that are insured for a lot of money. And they relay that to this contact number. Now, this is 1971. Answering machines were still fairly new. So it's pretty high tech that they rent a room, set up an answering machine. That's where all of this information goes. The answering machine is set up. So once the the messages are retrieved, they automatically erase. And then they move that location and that phone number periodically. So it's harder for them to track down. It's very intricate and it's quite brilliant and they probably could have carried on with it for quite some time, but they chose murder, which is always a poor choice. Sullivan instructs Malcolm to take out Jerry. I think he figures out that Jerry is undercover 
And Ling has a real big problem with this because, as he says, it brought the cops to our door. They're really good about figuring out murders. This is a problem. It also is a problem for his conscience. He is fine with being a thief. He does not like being a murderer. He's going to bail. Eric, you're new at this. Sometimes killing is necessary. Oh, no. Not me, Hal. Not me. I'm splitting. I advise you to do the same thing. To go where and do what? I do not intend to live the rest of my life on the run. But you don't have to. I know where to go. Besides, we've already skimmed off the cream. Huh? Why be greedy? Greedy? Do you know what I've done for this company? Cargo profits are up 28 million. In gratitude, they threw me a few extra nickels. Hell, we're on a collision course with McGarrett. All he's got is a dead body. Why run? We're built to take a squall. You're copping out on your own systems engineering. But it wasn't programmed for murder. Listen, I meant what I said. I, I want out right now. That was part of our deal, do you understand? You're panicking, Eric. All right, all right, you're free as a bird. Only do me a favor. Invent a dying relative or something. Cover me when you walk. Yeah. Yeah, I'm walking. But I think, I think you're making a big mistake, Hal. And therefore he makes the fatal mistake that they all make. You Just because this is an air cargo place doesn't mean you need to announce your departure. By saying, I'm going to bounce, that sets you up as a liability. And they almost always end up taking your ass out to make sure you don't talk. Why any of these people think that they're above that, I don't know. But the same fate happens to Ling, and he ends up getting murdered as well. Now, I know that when I do my synopsis, I tend to get a little snarky sometimes. I try to have a little fun with it, put in a little joke here and there. I was not kidding when I said that they shipped Ling's body back from Tokyo and Danny had to sign for the corpse. He literally signed for this delivery of a corpse. Who's going to sign for this package? I will. And it is kind of creepy. I'm going to have a picture up on my blog because Ling has obviously been murdered. He was garroted and thrown into this frozen container, which was shipped to Tokyo by air. So they said it was about eight hours. And so when they're unloading him in Tokyo, they pull off all this frozen stuff and then there is Ling. It is obviously not James Hong, but a reasonable facsimile thereof. It's a replica of him looking very frozen. It is amazing. I will have a picture on the blog. Truly, if you're going to watch this episode for any reason at all, be it Frozen Ling. And the only reason they find Ling, because Ling was planning on bailing, he had false ID and false passport on him. They mentioned that, is that Tokyo police looked into Interpol and found out that 5 was looking for him. And that's how they knew where to send him. So we have, in the course of the first 20 minutes, we have two murders. And 5 of course, is investigating the murder of Jerry and 
Cook is explaining everything to Steve about how this theft ring works and what Jerry was supposed to do. And there is some question about whether or not it could have been an accident. It is entirely possible and it was designed to look like an accident. The problem is, is that Steve doesn't believe in coincidences and he thinks it's just a little unlikely that an undercover man would be murdered in such a fashion. And of course, Steve is right. 5-0 kind of takes over looking into this theft ring, getting all of the information they can from Cook. And Cook brings in the roster of the cargo handlers looking for anyone who would be involved. So anybody with debts, anybody with a gambling problem, anybody with outstanding issues. And Kono runs all of that down and doesn't find anybody on the cargo crew that would have that problem that would have been recruited. Because they specifically set up Jerry to have a record like that to make him more appealing for the theft ring. Because that's one way to keep them quiet. You have a record? We know about it. We can make sure you never work again. But there doesn't seem to be anybody on the cargo crew that really has a makeup like that. So they end up getting Jerry's notebook from his body. And the lab people have to go through it. And I thought this was a nice touch. They take it and they they make slides out of it. And Danny has to explain while they're showing the slides. The reason why the notebook looks this way is because... The lab people had to salvage it from all of the blood. And I felt like that was a nice touch because we only kind of see, we get the, I mean, we understand that Jerry was crushed by the crates. We kind of see his body under a sheet after the fact. But when you see the blood on the notebook, that little detail really kind of brings it home that, oh my gosh, this guy really did suffer a devastating injury and a gruesome death. This was not clean. This was not neat. He was mushed. But they go through his notebook and they find Anita Putnam's name in it. And obviously they go to talk to Anita. Meanwhile, Steve's intuition about running down the previous phone number, the last contact number that they had, pays off because Chin Ho goes and talks to this landlady. And it's a great conversation because it's it's literally a conversation between two locals. She explains to him the, the circumstance of this particular tenant. What happened to the people? The place is empty. No, one of the phone stops ringing. I used to hear it night and day. They're never giving me notice. You rented them the room? Good tenants paid two months in advance. They were never there. Who answers the phone? You sound of though you just came off the boat. In America, the phone answer itself, makes beeping noises and plays back. Who came to see the room? Nobody. A man saw the sign for rent. He telephoned me, needed a place cheap to get his mail and messages and to hang his hat. I say, okay, he sent me a check. Would you still have his check? Yes. And I love how she says, we live in the present and now the phones answer for themselves. But Chinho is able to A, get a glimpse into exactly how they're doing this. And he gets a hold of this check that the tenant used. So that's also a lead. And we later get more slides. The check and there's another piece of evidence that's used that's held up that Danny puts on slides, which, which it's a handwriting samples and handwriting analysis that connects Ling to the theft ring via this apartment. He was the one who acquired it and set it up. So Steve goes and talks to Anita and it's a fabulous conversation because once again, Marion Ross is back. 
and Steve talks to her about why her name would be in Undercover Jerry's notebook. How did they get you to join? Join? Join what? What are you talking about? Could you account for the two, the three, and the $500 bank deposits? That's my ex-husband. He sends us money all the time. No, he doesn't. He's in Maryland. He's remarried. He has four children, and he's in debt. Now, would you like to talk here, or would you rather go down to 5 headquarters? Look, my daughter was in trouble. I mean, really bad trouble. So you started spotting for them? Let's go. No, please. All right. What do you want to know? Who was in the ring with you? Well, I can't even help you. Because I didn't meet any of them. This man phoned me. He knew about Cynthia. I mean, he knew things that I didn't even know. So I had to have the money. I did whatever he wanted me to. Such as? No, don't ask me, because... They're going to find out. And they'll kill me. They will. Mrs. Putnam, decide. Do you want to talk or do you want to be booked? And she comes clean, saying that she got involved with this theft ring to help fund her daughter and try to keep her daughter out of out of trouble and try to help her stay clean, which it sounds like it's a losing battle. And you really kind of feel bad for her. She feels like she's stuck between a rock and a hard place because now that she's involved with this ring, she can't get out because they'll kill her. She knows this. But Steve being Steve puts the pressure on her. She gives Steve the new contact number. And we get some really great detective work with Steve and Che when it comes to figuring out how to work this answering machine system. Because they figure out the contact number, which says, leave your, leave your message. Now, Che knows that because he has a little answering machine at the lab, that basically what it is is you call the number and then you play a specific tone and that will give you your messages. Now, they know that the messages will be erased. So the best way for them to access it without the theft ring knowing that they have acquired this information is Steve sets up a reel-to-reel recorder. Che figures out the tone. The messages start to play. They record the messages on the recorder. Then they call the number again and play it all back so that the messages have not gone missing. The theft ring does not know that anyone is on to them. It's actually a brilliant scene to watch them puzzle this out and work this out and use that technology not only for their own game, but also against the theft ring. It's really great. It's very high tech for 1971. So in the background of this episode, you have Mr. Grayson, whose wife is very ill. They say, I believe they say she's got a, she's a cardiac emergency, but they're waiting on a shipment of medication, which back then was new, called glucagon. And that is a diabetic medication because it stimulates glucose production in the pancreas. However, Anita's diverted that first shipment to be stolen for the insurance money. So the second replacement shipment does not get there in time and Mrs. Grayson dies. And Mr. Grayson is obviously crushed because not only did the medicine not get there in time, but he also wasn't there when his wife died because he arrives at the room just as they're pulling the sheet over her head. We're talking a double whammy here. So he's obviously devastated about this. 
and understandable. He he throws a, a great fit at the air cargo place before taking it right to 5-0. And you kind of think that maybe this will be like an added charge for them. We've got them now with two murders and now we have some negligent homicide thrown in. You think, okay, yeah, we're just racking up the charges against Sullivan and this is how cold and uncaring these people are and this is the kind of stuff that Anita ends up perpetrating just to try to help her daughter and all of this. Then we have it come back to us with Steve going to Mr. Grayson because he knows Mr. Grayson does a lot of shipping and he deals in antique jade. He decides that he's going to set up this theft ring using the messages system against them. He goes to Mr. Grayson and appeals to him. He asks for his help to set up this theft ring by having him ship some jade, insure it for an ungodly amount of money, and then Anita will call it into the contact number and they'll be able to trace it and catch the people in the act. And Mr. Grayson is at first doubtful that this is going to be worth anything because as he says, people like these don't go to jail. You don't get justice. Steve, of course, disagrees, and he says at the very least we can stop them from killing someone else. And that seems to convince Mr. Grayson to help them. And he does, sort of. Because Mr. Grayson has his own agenda. Justice is nice, but what he really wants is vengeance. I've got nothing against this guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Sullivan was played by Don Chastain. This is his third of three episodes. He was also in the two-part episode, The Grandstand Play. Anita, as I said, was played by Marion Ross. This is her second of two episodes. She was also in the episode Blind Tiger. Grayson was played by Michael Strong. This is his first of three episodes. He also appeared in the in episodes of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Man from Uncle, The Fugitive, Star Trek, I Spy, The Green Hornet, The Big Valley, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Longstreet, The Sixth Sense, FBI, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Ironside, Columbo, Planet of the Apes, Cold Shack, The Night Stalker, The Streets of San Francisco, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Man from Atlantis, Quinn CME, Lou Grant, Barnaby Jones, and Galactica 1980. He appeared in the movies The Great Santini, Patton, Point Blank, and Detective Story, and he appeared in the TV movies D.A. Conspiracy to Kill, Travis Logan D.A., Queen of the Stardust Ballroom, Overboard, and This Year's Blonde. Cook was played by Barney Phillips. He was Fletcher Huff on The Betty White Show, Mike Golden on Dan August, Captain Ed Frank on Felony Squad, he was the voice of Porthos on The Three Musketeers, the voice of Shazam on Shazam, Major Donald Doc Kaiser on 12 O'Clock High, Lieutenant Avery on The Brothers Brannigan, Lieutenant Sam Geller on Johnny Midnight, Lieutenant Ed Jacobson on The 50s Dragnet, and he was probably best known as Haley the Bartender in the Twilight Zone episode, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? He also appeared in episodes of Ozzy and Harriet, Have Gun Will Travel, The Andy Griffith Show, Perry Mason, Surfside Six, 77 Sunset Strip, Gunsmoke, The Wild Wild West, The Fugitive, Invaders, Get Smart, Mod Squad, The Virginian, Longstreet, Bonanza, The Paul Lynn Show, Adam 12, Cannon, Barnaby Jones, Fantasy Island, One Day at a Time, Trapper John, Chips, The Dukes of Hazard, and Lou Grant. He appeared in the movies No Deposit, No Return, This is a Hijack, 
Della, The Threat, Gang War, Cry Terror, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and The Night Holds Terror. And he was in the TV movies, Run, Simon, Run, Beg, Borrow, or Steal, Brinks, The Great Robbery, and The Amazing Howard Hughes. Eric Ling was played by James Hong. This is his third of four episodes. We also saw him in A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead, and The Devil and Mr. Frog. Ms. Thomas was played by Sue McCollum Garabin. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in Dear Enemy. Dr. Medford was played by Victor Alevi. This is his only credit. Mrs. Kahama was played by Elsie DeMello. This is her first of two episodes. Corinne Wilson was played by Patricia Herman. This is her second of 12 episodes. We also saw her in Board She Hung Herself. Kim Wong was played by Myrtle Hilo. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in Run, Johnny, Run. Joanna Grayson was played by Sherry Rice. She also appeared in the movie Demon Tongue. Jerry Turner was played by Ward Benson. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart. In uncredited roles, John Malcolm was played by Bill Bigelow. This is his sixth of 15 episodes. Policeman number one was played by Alex Kakahuna. This is his only credit. And policeman number two was played by Roland Matsura. This is also his only credit. And that is Air Cargo, Dial for Murder. I like this episode. It's a solid episode. It's not a real flashy episode. It does have a little bit going on that you kind of have to pay a little bit of attention to, but it's not too much that you get overwhelmed or that you lose your spot. You don't lose the plot. I realize I didn't talk too much about it, but there's really not a whole lot to talk about, and that's not because it's bad. It's just because it's a real solid episode. There's nothing particularly outstanding about it. Like I said, it's not flashy. It's enjoyable. It gets the job done. You have Frozen Ling, and we also get a Book of Dano, so... I mean, what more could you ask for? Give this one a watch. Well, somebody at work must have, you know, told him to call me for a date or something. How did these men get in? Oh, well, when I got in my car this morning, uh, they were there, uh, two men. At your home? Uh, In my garage. Uh, They took me to the bank at gunpoint. One was already here in a car, uh, their own. What kind of car? A light green sedan, uh, We've got the uh, license number, uh, HC6310. Did you get a good look at any of their faces? No, the mask covered everything, almost everything. I guess Carol got the closest look. Carol? Yes. Your real last name? Uh, Lindsay, Carol Lindsay. When I came in this morning, one of them grabbed me, and his face was real close to mine. Did you uh, see anything unusual or notice anything unusual? Just his eyes. They were very cold and green. Scary. Anything else? Well, they seem to know everything about the bank. Uh, My name, uh, the number of employees. What about the cameras? They knew all about them. They wouldn't let us get near the activating buttons. They they knew about the alarm system. They, uh, how the uh, time lock mechanism uh, works in the vault. I... Must assume they also know what was in the vault. Meaning what? Well, we're at an all-time peak in our cash reserves. Uh, Six million dollars. Episode 8, For a Million, Why Not? 
air date november 2nd 1971 directed by roy winston this is his first of four episodes story by gerald ludwig and eric bursavisi this is their 12th of 12 episodes and teleplay by jerome coopersmith this is his eighth of 32 episodes Bank teller Carol arrives at work and walks right into a robbery in progress. She joins the rest of the hostages as the robbers patiently wait for the vault's time release to open. With two minutes to go, one of the robbers appears to have a violent attack of some kind. Unable to proceed, the robbers bail, leaving behind the money and the baffled hostages. In the car, they baffle us all by revealing that the attack was a put-on. What? Five-O arrives with Dano on lead since Steve is on the big island for a trial. The robbers apparently waylaid the bank manager at home and brought him to the bank. They seemed to know everything about the bank and how it operated, including that it was currently housing $6 million. Five-O takes Carol to the office to look at mugshots because despite their masks, she got the best look at them. Dano updates Steve via phone during a court recess, but there's not much to tell. They found the car, which was stolen, and Carol is going through the mug books. They've put out a warning to the other banks in case the thieves try again. They're also looking through the files on any felons with a bank MO. That leads them to talk to Noonan. However, he's alibied by the office manager, Blumberg, who says Noonan was filling out forms at the time. Meanwhile, Carol, freed of the mud books, meets with Galvin, the robber with the attack. It turns out that the two of them, plus Noonan and Blumberg, are all in on this robbery together with a guy named Hawkins, and she lets them know that the $6 million they crave will be transported from the bank at 3.30 the next day. Their botched robbery worked to force the bank to move the loot, which will make it easier for them to grab. All of them are disillusioned with their lives. Galvin is a dance instructor who romances old ladies for cash. Carol is a bank teller. Blumberg gave his life to a job that gave him a gold watch. Noonan is a felon, and Hawkins is a disillusioned war vet. And $6 million will go a long way to help them all start over better. While Kono and Chin work on increasing the security for the banks, and Carol tells Galvin she's ready to spend forever with him, which he hesitates at, Hawkins and Noonan meet with a printer named Carlson. He's printed up some fake invoices for them, and they're all really pleased with his work. Carlson gets paid with death instead of cash. 5-0 investigates the murder and finds the broken type from the forms Carlson made. They scoop it up and take it back to the lab where they analyze it all for fresh ink, later finding four red numbers and eight black letters. It's some kind of form or invoice or stock certificate. The lab boys tell Dano that there are 40,000 possible combinations. Better send it to the computer. Hawkins, Galvin, and Noonan deliver the fake forms to Blumberg, who dismays over the fact that they killed Carlson. But it was necessary. There's one less person that can talk, and it also makes everyone an accessory, which is a great incentive to keep everyone else from talking too. Blumberg replaces the real invoices with the fake ones according to plan. Galvin tells Carol that they'll need to go their separate ways after the job. He's not the marrying kind, and it's for her safety anyway. He'll give her a good head start with some cash. Carol agrees, but only if she gets a full share, a million dollars. She also informs him that she's written a letter detailing everything and left it with her lawyer to be opened in the event of anything violent happening to her. When Galvin relays this to Hawkins, Hawkins says that it's a nice play to score an extra share for himself and Carol, but Galvin is adamant that this was all Carol's idea as a way to protect herself. Hawkins makes it plain that they'll keep Carol quiet by paying Galvin's share, and he emphasizes that statement by pointing his gun at Galvin. Galvin takes the hint. 
Blumberg gives Noonan his fake pickup orders to obtain a rig, and armed guards pick up the $6 million from the bank, the manager informing Danny that everything went fine. Only it's not going fine. As the armored car emerges from a tunnel, they're met by Hawkins, Noonan, and Galvin in a van. Hawkins kills the driver and the other guard before pouring some deadly gas in the roof vent near the rear guard, while Galvin, dressed as a cop, directs traffic. When the coast is relatively clear, they remove the corpses from the front of the armored car and take off with the loot. You know me. I love a complicated plan. I love a big, extravagant, over-the-top plan. That is who I am as a person. This plan has that. But the way that this plan comes together when we first see it with the bank robbery and Galvin faking the attack, so they leave without the money. And at first you think that he's actually having an attack. So when it's revealed in the car that he's faking it, you're, at, you're asking yourself, what is this? The plan seems really questionable at this point because it doesn't make any sense. Then slowly over the course of the episode, the first 10, 15 minutes, we get the revelation of all of the players in the game. We know that Hawkins, Noonan, and Galvin are involved because we see them at the robbery. We see them in the car. They all get in the front seat because this was back when you had bench seats and cars that could fit 75 humans comfortably. I also have to point this out because it bothered me. They're committing this robbery and Noonan is wearing sandals. I realize, sir, this is Hawaii, but I feel like you should have better, more practical footwear for a robbery. Anyway, so we know that those three gentlemen are involved. And we are introduced to Carol, the bank teller, because she is the last of the employees to arrive at the bank and is waylaid by the robbers when one of her co-workers lets her in because the obviously bank's not open yet it's locked it seems like she is a witness but there's something slightly off about her and maybe you won't pick it up if you watch it the first time but you will the second time is that she doesn't seem the bank manager is terribly upset by all of this she was accosted by one of the robbers had a gun flaunted in front of her face she was taken hostage basically for a short period of time However, when Danny is talking to her, she doesn't seem that upset. When you first watch it, you're like, hmm, maybe she's not that great of an actress. Until you realize when she, you see her meet with Galvin that you're like, oh, of course. She's in on it. And it kind of throws you back to the bank manager saying how these people seem to know everything about the bank. They knew what time it opened, they knew where he lived, knew about the time vault, knew how many employees would be working that morning, knew that there were $6 million in the vault. The fact that nobody picked up on that and said, well, if these people know all of this about the bank, there is likely to be an inside person involved. None of them picked up on that. But obviously there is, and that's Carol. And Galvin recruited her specifically for this. He's going to give her a cut of his share in the form of basically keeping her like a princess. He will give her an allowance. He will buy her whatever she wants, take her wherever she wants to go. A million is not going to last that long when you live like that. But we are later introduced to Blumberg through Newton. So Danny obviously is keeping Steve up to date as Steve is on the big island at court. Great reference to a previous episode. He is there for the Johnny Aporta trial which had a change of venue, but we met Johnny Aporta back in the second episode, I believe. No bottles, no cans, no people. So that's a great reference. 
which you don't always get in shows of this time. So Steve's on the big island. He's in Hilo uh, for this trial. And Danny's keeping him up to date. And of course, Steve is giving his suggestions. And one of them was running down any felon who might have a bank Emma, which Danny anticipated he's already done. Two of the people are indisposed, but the third person is Noonan and they go to talk to him at his job and they go to and he says that he was in the office at that time and Blumberg backs it up. He was filling out forms. Here are the forms and the forms are time stamped as Blumberg says it makes his life easier and he seems very helpful, but he also tells Danny and Chin, I realize you're looking into him because he's a felon, but maybe you, you should give him the benefit of the doubt. Of course, he would say that because when Galvin and Carol go to talk to Hawkins, obviously Noonan is there, but also Blumberg comes out. So we now have all of our players in this particular scheme. And it is an elaborate scheme because we find out that the entire reason that they did the botched robbery was to make the bank manager nervous so that he would move the money. It's much easier to grab that cash when it's on the move. But of course, Steve brings up the one big hurdle is that you're on an island. Where are you going to go with that much money? How are you going to get this money off the island? Slowly, the pieces of this scheme come together. So we get that answer. And it's just really cool how they do it because Hawkins and Noonan go to talk to Carlson, this printer. And he's like, here are your fake invoices. So you're wondering why in the hell would they need fake invoices for this? And then, of course... Hawkins kills Carlson instead of paying him because he is a cheap bastard. It's a great sort of little touch to that scene to show just how cold Hawkins and Noonan in particular are, is that while Hawkins is shooting Carlson to death, Noonan is off to the side polishing his sunglasses. Just cool, casual, just taking care of business. They get these invoices. They take them to Blumberg, who despairs over the killing of Carlson. You mean Carlson the Britta? Why? He gave you what you wanted. He wasn't even part of the plan. It's part of my plan, Blumberg. You see, if anything goes wrong, if any one of you guys gets caught, I don't want you turning state's evidence on me. You see, this way you're an accessory to murder. There's no turning back. It's 0820. Let's review. Well, if you don't mind, I gotta be on a job at 0900. I mind, Blumberg. Sit, Blumberg. All right, now, let's review our tactical plans. Assault and aftermath. This, this whole thing, it's like a war to you, ain't it? What did you say they gave you, Blumberg? A gold watch. <laughs> well, they gave me a wound in the guts. It's going to take about 10 years off my life. And then I get home only to be called a, a monster by some long-haired group with a beard. Yeah. I'm going to get him back. With interest. Again, it's a great insurance policy because, one, you have someone who is now less likely to talk unless someone gets a Ouija board. And two, it makes everyone an accessory, which makes them less likely to talk because they're not going to want to take a murder rap. So that's pretty smart. Cold, callous, but smart. But it's obvious that while Noonan is pretty much driven by money, 
Blumberg is also driven by money. He's looking for the retirement that he'd been denied. Hawkins is driven by something else. Hawkins served in Vietnam, was gut shot, got sent home, only to be called names by hippies. He's looking to basically fund a revolution, his own private revolution. He's treating this as a battle and a war. And Blumberg kind of calls him out on that. But that's why the shares are divvied up the way that they are, is that Blumberg, Noonan, and Galvin all get a million apiece, and he gets the other three million. This is his idea. This is his war. So he's obviously got a touch of unhinged in there. But Blumberg replaces the invoices. So again, you're curious as to why they would need those. Well, the company that Blumberg and Noonan work for is called Tiki Gods, and they make tiki dolls. And he's in charge of the shipping. And so that's how they end up getting the truck that they need in order to pull off this heist. They fake up the invoice. Blumberg gives it to Noonan and says, you better go get a rig because you've got 900 crates to get. So he's going with this rig that's empty, but supposedly has 900 crates in it. They park that in like a barn out in the middle of whenever. The armored car picks up the money. They start going through a tunnel. There is a, quote, disabled van half-assed blocking the exit of this tunnel. Of course, the armored car stops. Hawkins, Noonan, and Galvin get out. Hawkins shoots and kills the driver and the other guard. They then run around to the side, so the side of the armored car that's up against the tunnel, so you can't really see what they're doing. They get up on top of there and pour some sort of noxious, deadly liquid that turns into a gas. It looks like something that you would get out of a Batman episode. The Joker's deadly gas gets poured into the back and they tape off the vent so the gas can't come out and it ends up killing the guard in the back. Meanwhile, Galvin's dressed like a cop directing traffic around this. So it kind of looks like an accident. So people pass by. They end up taking the corpses out of the front of the truck. The three of them pile into the truck and they take off. They get to the barn. They load the entire armored car into the back of this semi-rig and drive off with it. Now, here's the thing. Because of the back road that they took to get to this barn, it's all dirt road. So 5-0, when they're alerted to the armored car being heisted, they literally follow their tracks. In the meantime, you have Galvin, Hawkins, and Noonan, who literally cover their tracks. Now, them getting this armored car into the back of the rig, it was just perfect. It's like, I don't even know how you could possibly train for it. But they have it in such good rhythm and they all know their parts and they all know their places that it goes so smoothly. It's just a couple of minutes. That's all it takes for them to get this car into the back of this rig. The semi pulls out and Hawkins and Galvin stick behind and they literally rake over the tire tracks. So it looks like there's stuff going in, but it doesn't look like there's anything coming out before they take off with this rig. So they take this rig and... Noonan drops off Galvin and Hawkins at a, on a street and they get into their own cars. Noonan proceeds to take this truck to the shipping place. It'll be Sea Freight and checks it in. This is how they're getting the money off the island. They're literally shipping it. And they have the fake invoice saying, hey, yeah, here's 900 crates of tiki dolls. And it's really an armored car and a corpse because, well, they took the corpses in the front seat out at the tunnel. And knocked out the shot up glass and everything so they could see to drive. They're, they did not open those back doors. They're locked. They have not blown those doors yet. So they are shipping this armored car in this semi-container, which is great. I mean, that is like brilliant. 
but there is still the corpse of the final guard in the back. They have not gotten that man out. So they're shipping the money and the corpse to the mainland. Brilliant. And they all go their quote-unquote separate ways to get to the mainland to get their money. It's an absolutely brilliant plan. It's so good, aside from the corpse in the box, that you almost want them to get away with it because, not because you particularly like any of the characters, except for maybe Blumberg, but because that plan is so good, they should get that payoff. They've earned it. It just, everything worked out so well. But of course, this is 5-0. That's not going to happen. So you've got Danny leading the investigation, trying to piece all of this together. And their biggest clue of what is going on comes from Carlson the printer being murdered. Of course, they have to investigate that. And the type. They don't know that this is connected just yet until they, they get the type. And they have two lab guys. They have to go through bit by bit to look for fresh ink on these letters and numbers. And they find it. And now you have 40,000 combinations. And they put that in through the computer. And the computer does not really help them. So they are in, it's Kono, Danny, and Chin Ho, in with a chalkboard, going through all of the possible combinations of these eight letters. And they finally land on Tiki Gods. So that's how it all comes together, is that they realize Noonan works at Tiki Gods, Blumberg works at Tiki Gods, Blumberg would have had to replace these invoices. It all starts coming together for them then. We do have this great scene as well, because the whole time Steve is in court, he's getting updates in a phone booth at the courthouse. There is actually a scene where he pleads with the judge to let him go back for a night to help his team figure this out because now he's got three corpses and he would like to be able to get this case solved and the judge denies him. Sir, I'm not asking to be excused. I just want to go back to Honolulu for one night. May I remind you again that we have a murder trial to complete? Well, I'm talking about three murders. Three murders and six million dollars stolen. Now my men are out now, searching every inch of that island for that armored truck. If I could just go back to Honolulu for one night. Your department can function without you for one night. It has nothing to do. Request denied. So I just like that they at least gave us a little bit, because we don't have any hardly any Steve in the episode, but they gave us that little bit of, yes, he is so close yet so far away. Also wearing an absolutely gorgeous pink shirt and pink and blue purple swirl tie combo. Just gorgeous. I mean, what else are you going to wear to court when you're trying to put away a mobster? Obviously, you're going to go with the pink. I have found that no one argues when I wear an excessive amount of pink, and apparently Steve McGarrett feels the same way. One other interesting aspect of this episode is that we have this other story of Calvin and Carol. He's obviously seduced her into helping them, but when she mentions of being with him forever, he kind of box at that, and then later he says, we're going to have to go our separate ways. And she comes out with, Are you sure you want to leave me, Ray? For your sake, baby, it's for your sake. You'll have a good start on 50000 I don't want $50,000. But you deserve it. Hey, I wouldn't think of you not taking it. I want a full share. A million dollars. And there's something else that you ought to tell Mr. Hawkins. I've left a letter with my attorney, Mr. Chicago. Just in case something violent happens to me. Absolutely cold, protecting herself. You love to see it. 
I love to see a woman who takes charge like that and knows that the man that she is with probably ain't shit, but she's going to get hers. But the thing is, is that this happens prior to the robbery. And Galvin talks to Hawkins about this prior to the robbery. Now, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. That's simple. We get out of it by paying. Paying? Full share? Yep. Your share. Galvin is going into this knowing that if he wants his money, that something terrible is going to have to happen to Carol, but in a way that the lawyer doesn't open that letter, because otherwise he is looking at losing his entire share. So you have to wonder why he goes through with it. Does he really think that he can convince Carol that he's changed his mind and that he can somehow continue to romance her and keep his money? Or does he believe that he can make her disappear under circumstances that don't get that letter opened up? Or does he think that he can get to that letter? Or does he think that Hawkins will kill him if he doesn't go through with it? Which either way, I mean, Hawkins is kind of screwed. It's just an interesting aspect to the episode because there's also this feeling of you're waiting for something bad to happen to her. Because now Hawkins knows and Hawkins doesn't like people who talk. And Hawkins wants to ensure that people don't talk. So you're, you're kind of anticipating that something bad might happen to her as we're going through the rest of this episode. But she's right there with the rest of them when they're buying their tickets to the mainland so they can go pick up their money. And if Dano and 5-0 don't figure out how they made this $6 million disappear, they're going to get it. <laughs> You know what I get? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Galvin was played by Robert Fields. He appeared in episodes of Capital, TJ Hooker, Knott's Landing, Miami Vice, and Law and & Order. He also appeared in the movies Little Dreams, American Strays, Getting Away with Murder, Jet Lag, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, The Stepford Wives, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, The Incident, and the 1958 version of The Blob. And he also appeared in the TV movies, The Marcus Nelson Murders, Judge Horton and the Scottsboro Boys, Family Reunion, and Blood Feud. Hawkins was played by Sam Melville. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail and Most Likely to Murder. Blumberg was played by Jack Crustian. He has 225 credits going back to 1945. He was Papa Papadopoulos on Webster. Fred Avery on Material World, Sam Markowitz on Busting Loose, and Tully on Hong Kong. He also appeared in episodes of Our Miss Brooks, Gunsmoke, Zorro, Zorro and Son, The 1950s Dragnet, Bat Masterson, The Rifleman, Mr. Ed, Route 66, Batman, Bonanza, Ironside, Columbo, Medical Center, Emergency, The Rockford Files, Ellery Queen, The Incredible Hulk, Vegas, Chips, Alice, Trapper John M.D., Barney Miller, Heart to Heart, The A-Team, Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, Too Close for Comfort, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Living Single, Full House, Lois and Clark, and Murphy Brown. He appeared in the movies Till There Was You, Legend of the Wild, Sunburn, Satan's Cheerleaders, Freebie and the Bean, The Million Dollar Duck, McClintock, the 1962 version of Cape Fear, Follow That Dream, The Apartment, Tightrope, The Angry Red Planet, Cry Terror, Reform School Girl, The Night Holds Terror, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, and The War of the Worlds. And he appeared in the TV movies Deadly Harvest, The November Plan, T The Time Machine, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Dark Mirror, 
Deadly Intentions, and Heart to Heart, Home is Where the Heart Is. Carol was played by Lee Christensen. She appeared in episodes of Bracken's World, Night Gallery, Marcus Welby, Cannon, McLeod, Starsky and Hutch, Emergency, The Blue Knight, The Six Million Dollar Man, Rockford Files, Vegas, Chips, The Fall Guy, TJ Hooker, and Hunter. She appeared in the movies And They're Off, Butterfly, The Doll Squad, and Beyond Atlantis. And she appeared in the TV movies The Six Million Dollar Man, The Solid Gold Kidnapping, and Intimate Agony. Shaw was played by Wendell Martin. This is his first of three episodes. Those are his only credits. Noonan was played by Al Harrington. This is his last appearance before he becomes Ben in season five. The lab tech was played by Seth Sakai. This is his second of 23 episodes. We also saw him in part one of the Grandstand play. The Judge was played by Don Lance Over. This is his first of four episodes. He also appeared in episodes of The Brian Keith Show, The Mackenzies of Paradise Cove, and Magnum P.I. Hanley was played by Harry Williams. This is his first of three episodes. The Driver was played by Harold Lee. This is his only credit. And Carlson was played by Glenn McCannon. This is his third of 32 episodes. Our director was Ray Winston. He directed four episodes of Hawaii Five-0. He also directed two episodes of Studio One, two episodes of Playhouse 90, two episodes of Great Ghost Tales, four episodes of Checkmate, three episodes of The Twilight Zone, two episodes of East Side, West Side, two episodes of Branded, five episodes of Bob Hope Presents The Chrysler Theater, and two episodes of The Good Life. He also has directing credits for the movies The Gamblers, Don't Just Stand There, Banning, and Ambush Bay. And he also has a writing credit for The Gamblers. And that is for a million why not. Really enjoy this episode. I love a complicated plan. I love a big, bold plan. This is a big, bold plan. I just love the way the episode comes together because you're curious about how all of these moving parts come into play. And then they finally click together and you cannot help but enjoy the brilliance of the plan. We also get another episode of Danny leading the charge because Steve is taking care of business elsewhere. Like I said, we had the great callback to earlier in the season with this being the Johnny Oporta trial. But you have Dano in charge. And it's always nice to see Danny flexing his leadership skills. So this is definitely one you should give a watch. So Meaning? Don't hold your breath. And that is episode 42 of Bookum Dano. Two episodes with two different kinds of great scheming and plans happening. Like I said, Air Cargo, Dial for Murder, it's a solid episode, nothing flashy. Meanwhile, for a million, why not? This is Flash. This is where your Flash is. This is a big, bold plan. Both of them are enjoyable watching everything come together. They're both fun watches. And I hope this was a fun lesson for you. And I want to thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to be aggravated by me in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure your packages are insured and your plans are bold. Until next time, aloha!